Greetings to the brightest audience in the country. I'm Nicole McBurney. It is Telethon Month, and we have so far raised $6,524 of our $25,000 goal, just over a quarter of the way there. But we're already halfway through the month of January, so we could really use your help to get us to our $25,000 goal. If you can help us out, head over to kgov.com after the show and click on the Telethon banner at the top of your screen. You can sponsor a show, make a donation, or purchase something off the store. Anything you get during the month of January will go toward our Telethon goal. And thank you so much to all of our listeners who have donated thus far, helping us keep the lights on. We really appreciate it. Now here's today's Theology Thursday. The next two verses would be very relevant to early Christians because of the realization that Jesus was God. And so you could imagine how early teachers and scribes would write notes in the margin where they would point out and make it clear in their own minds that this is saying Jesus is part of the Trinity. Well, let's read these verses, 7 and 8. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. Okay, the second half of verse 7 and the first part of verse 8 are not in the original manuscripts, and they're not quoted by the early Christian writers. So I'll read it the way John wrote it. Of course, John wrote in Greek, but in our English translation. For there are three that bear witness. Then you jump to verse 8 on earth. The Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. For this is a testimony from Christ's earthly ministry, and the Gospels give us the account that Christ and his ministry was affirmed by his baptism and by the Holy Spirit and by his crucifixion. And so these are the testimony that agree that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, you could imagine it's easy to that a scribe coming to this point would think, well, those are not the only three that bear witness because this reminds us of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So I'll put that in the margin. And a scribe puts that in the margin, and a couple centuries later, as the Bible was transmitted by writing, handwritten manuscripts, if we begin all the way back with Job, this process went on for thousands of years until the advent of the printing press. Then a scribe takes this gloss, and whether he does it intentionally or because he's tired, and it goes right in the text. And it's in the text. And then his copy of the New Testament that he creates is used and copied by others, and pretty soon there is a family of manuscripts that have that verse in it. And we could imagine when there were some rejecting the deity of Jesus Christ, that some Christians who wanted to take the easy way out would say, well, look right here. Here's a perfect verse for the Trinity. The Father, 
the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. That's it. That's what it says. And so, in this way, we water down the Word of God, thinking that we're helping, but we're hurting. So, the vast majority of modern Bible translations will make this clear, that this was not in the original. And of course, that's very good that they do that. Early Christian writers like Origen, for example, Athanasius, and others would certainly have quoted this verse if it was in the Bible when they were writing. But they did not, which is added weight, significant weight, that in fact the textual criticism is right, and this was added later. So, there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. So, Christ's earthly ministry began when the Holy Spirit descended upon him as a dove at his water baptism with John, and it ended when he was baptized into death by the shedding of his blood. And these agree as one, for Christ's coming and his death were a unity of purpose. Verse 9, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. So Christianity is not only a religion of doctrinal positions. It's not just something you could put on paper and checkmark the statement of faith, and I agree with that, I agree with that, I agree with that. Christianity first and foremost, is a relationship with God. And when you have a relationship with God, it's not that you're necessarily going to feel butterflies in your stomach when you pray and this warm feeling. Some people wear their feelings on their sleeve, and that's better than me. I have to search for my feelings, try to figure out where they are. But so there's a great range of human experience but God dwells in us, and I believe that if we develop a relationship with God, even those of us who are more cerebral and less emotional, we could begin to sense this love relationship with him. And it doesn't come easy for everyone. For some people, it does. Some Christians, some men, they become a Christian they read John 3.16 at a Bible study, and they start crying. They say, what's the matter? Oh, I'm just so in love with the Lord. Well, that's great. And I am too, but I show it differently. But I do believe that this testimony that is in us is something that will give added volume to the voice that God has put within us of his law, his conscience, the conscience that he wrote on our hearts, that when we become a child of God, when we're born again, the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and that testimony 
should become louder to us so that we can hear it, not audibly, but we can know. If I have the thought that I'm going to do something wrong, boy, it's like sirens going off in my head. That's wrong. And you'd have to fight to ignore the voice of your conscience when you become a Christian and you become sensitive to the testimony of God within you. Verse 11. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And John likes this theme. In his Gospel, he writes that this is eternal life. He's quoting Jesus. This is eternal life that they might know God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. That is eternal life. Knowing God, having a relationship with God, is eternal life. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I brought this verse to a priest where we grew up in New Jersey in Hawthorne at a Roman Catholic parish, St. Anthony's. And when we started studying the Bible, we went to our priest, the Monsignor, Father Stepien, a number of different priests, and we'd ask Bible questions. We'd ask about God creating Adam and Eve in the garden. And I was told that these are myths like the Greek myths, and you don't have to believe in them. So much of the Old Testament, according to our parish, was not true. It just had nice stories that you could read. I don't know what's so nice about millions of people in the world drowning. I don't know why, how that turns out to be a nice story. If it's not true, what's the purpose of it in the Bible, and why does Jesus refer to it as though it were true? So I had a crisis. Who am I going to believe, the priest or Jesus? And what he said in the New Testament, the priest or the Bible. And I'm so thankful that my whole family, my mother, my father, my two brothers, my sister, we all decided to believe the Bible and not the priest. And so I remember bringing this verse to our priest because I asked him, can't we know that we have eternal life? And he said, no, you cannot know. I said, yeah, but the Bible's no, you cannot know that you have eternal life. You have to hope you do. And after you die, then your loved ones come to the church. They put a dollar or a five-dollar bill in the candle offering. They light a candle and they pray for your soul. Maybe that you could get out of purgatory and then you'll have eternal life. But no, you can't know. So I read this to him. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So I said, John wrote that we may know that we have eternal life. And this priest said, no, you cannot know that. And then I added other Bible verses. And I think I know I've said this in the past, the priest rejected the Bible I brought to him. He said, that's not a Catholic Bible. So I said, well, let's look at it in the Catholic Bible. And he didn't own one. He didn't own a Bible. And we went into the rectory where the priests live, 
And there are three priests living there. And not one of the priests had a Bible and had a library. And there wasn't a Bible in their library. So we had to go into the church and get the big Bible on the altar for a thousand people to see and turn the pages to get to John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. And it said the exact same thing. A priest at St. Paul's, which was our sister parish in North Haldon, New Jersey, he performed a funeral for a young girl at her high school who was killed in a drunk driving accident. And it was packed, of course, the church. And he assured everyone she was in heaven. And so after I went to talk to him, because I had talked to him previously, because I had been an altar boy. We had been altar boys. I used to read the readings at the Mass. Going to church was a big deal for us. And I asked him, Father, you told us that we can't know that we're saved or that we have eternal life, and you just told this whole group that we know she's in heaven, this girl. How could you say that? And he said, don't you realize you have to comfort the family? And I asked him, yeah, but you said you don't believe that. Are you saying you're lying to them? For them to be comforted, your religion is you have to lie to comfort people? And we realized that the Catholic Church had left the teachings of the Bible. We didn't feel like we were leaving the church. We let, felt like the church had left God's word. And so we went on then to become what you would call Protestants or Bible thumpers, fundamentalists. And I ended up as the pastor of Denver Bible Church, of all things. It's been a great joy and honor. So we believe in Christ that we may have eternal life, and we may know that we have eternal life. Verse 14, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. This morning, the sermon, we concluded our series on prayer, and we talked about praying in God's will, and that doesn't mean that you need to have some inside knowledge, some secret knowledge to know what is God's specific will for you, who are you going to marry, what job are you going to take, what car are you going to buy, where are you going to go to dinner? That's not God's will. God's will is that we would live holy lives in Christ. That is God's will. So when we pray in God's will, he hears us. Now, during the great tribulation for Israel, God will be answering prayers in a supernatural way. And so that is especially significant for John's converts and for those who were followers of Christ in Israel. But for us, we live in a different dispensation, and I am thankful that we're not in the midst of the tribulation with the wrath of God falling down all around us. But with that change in dispensation, there are changes in the manner of the believer's life. And so we've covered at length the specific house rules for the body of Christ for us today. Verse 15, and if we know that he hears us, 
whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. And so I think John is focusing on asking according to his will. Even when Christ was here on earth, when he was promising the most extraordinary things to Israel, and even during the Great Tribulation, God will not become a butler and do everything and anything believers ask of him. That's not the case. So as dispensationalists, we don't go quite far enough when we're interpreting the Bible and we get to these passages where Jesus is saying, I will answer your prayers. Where two or three are gathered, whatever you ask in my name, I will give it to you. We don't go far enough just to point out that this is for the Great Tribulation. Because it is for the Great Tribulation for Israel, but even then it's not woodenly literal that whatever they ask they will get. It's just not that God is not that way, but we take it that way because we're all lawyers, because we grew up in the Western world, and we've all been trained to think like lawyers, even though we hate lawyers. So, but God is not like that. And he expects that people will be on the same page that he's on, that they'll understand his meaning. So if believers in the tribulation pray for a new car, it doesn't mean they're going to get a new car right away. Even if two or three agree, it doesn't mean they're going to get a new car. Verse 16. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. Wow. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. Under Israel's covenant of circumcision, the believers must endure to the end to be saved. And when they sin, they ask for forgiveness. It's similar to the high priest before Christ's death offering sacrifices every day, daily returning to the temple to offer sacrifices, and then once a year on the Day of Atonement offering up a sacrifice for the nation. Even then, when that was happening, God said, these sacrifices will forgive your sin if you're humble, if you're sorry. But if you commit a high-handed sin, if you commit a high-handed sin, then there will be no sacrifice for sin. Your sin will not be forgiven. And so what would God mean, a high-handed sin? Well, if someone, let's say even a priest, which I think sadly was common, as we read in the book of Samuel, Eli had two sons who were priests, and they were awfully wicked, horrendously wicked, when we, dis when we read the description of them in the Bible. And to think that, well, because they offered a sacrifice, they would be forgiven. No, God calls that another way it's translated into English is a presumptuous sin. So if you commit a high-handed sin, a presumptuous sin, and you think, 
I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what God's word says. I don't care what the Ten Commandments say. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to offer to the sacrifice, and everything is fine. God says, no, that doesn't work. It's not going to work. Because I look at your heart, and I could see in your heart that you're not humble. You don't want me. You don't love me. You just love your rebellion. And so that sacrifice will not suffice to cover your sin. And I believe that is what John is talking about. When Peter sinned by denying Jesus, that didn't mean that at that moment, if he were to be killed by a guard with a sword, that he would have gone to hell. That's not true. So that's another, I think, fallacy of us dispensationalists when we're trying to rightly divide between the body of Christ living by grace and Israel living by law. I've heard dispensationalists say, under the law, if you sin, then you have to pray for forgiveness. Otherwise, if you die with that sin on your soul, you go to hell. That's not true. God is not the ogre who's looking for just the right moment to kill somebody so that they can die without forgiveness. No. If David were killed or died during the depravity of his sin, I believe, I could be wrong, this is my sense from reading the scriptures, that he would have gone to heaven, even in his grotesque sin. Because in his heart of hearts, as soon as he's confronted, he humbles himself and he's sorry. Whereas King Saul could have had the throne that led to the Messiah for all of eternity, the Bible says. But when he was confronted with his sin, he dug in in the hardness of his heart. He wasn't going to repent. So there was the different hearts. And God calls David a man after my own heart. And I think that was because of David's humility. So his sin, though it was so destructive, like our sin easily and often is today, Though his sin was so destructive, that doesn't mean that the believer in Israel is going to go to hell unless they remember to pray for forgiveness right away or before they die. However, there is a distinction. There is a level of rebellion and sin or someone in their heart, and it might be someone who had been a believer, as we read in Ezekiel, that all the righteousness that he has performed will not be remembered if he turns to the rebellion and forcibly joins the rebellion and mocks God and says, I don't care about you, God, and you die. Then we read that all the righteousness which he performed will not be remembered and he will die in his sin. So I believe that's the distinction that John is making for those in the covenant of circumcision. Verse 18, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. Now, didn't John tell us earlier, if you say you do not sin, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you? So then John, what, he can't keep his ideas straight, and he just contradicts himself? Well, that's how a lawyer would interpret it. A lawyer would say that. But so someone who gives John the grace to presume 
that he's saying something meaningful, we'll say, well, what does John mean? We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. That is, this kind of sin leading to death. This kind of sin that is characteristic of your whole life. You are the rebellion against God. That kind of sin is not in a believer's life. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. That is, of course, he could be tempted, of course, and early on in the New Testament, there were demon possessions, and in the Great Tribulation, there's going to be horrendous persecution of believers, but remember, a significant number of saved Israel will be sealed. 12,000 of each tribe, 144,000 will be sealed, somehow specially protected by God, and so the wicked one will not be able to get to them the way he might be able to get to others. But even still, regardless of whether a believer is one of those, a special contingent of worshipers in the tribulation or not, there is a real sense in which even the devil himself cannot harm you because, as Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear God. God could put body and soul into hell. So don't fear man. Don't fear the devil. Fear God. Verse 19. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So the world is in allegiance with Satan. We are of God, therefore there will be a tension. He who lives godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you. So there is that tension, although we don't want to intentionally magnify it. We don't want to provoke people to persecute us. But we recognize that persecution will come if we tell the truth, even if we only love our neighbor and point them to Christ. Verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding, that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Now that might sound like an unusual way to end John's epistles, but remember that the Ten Commandments, which Israel is under, the Ten Commandments begin saying that there is only one God. There is only one God. Obey him, honor him, love him. Do not make graven images, idols, to bow down to them. And believers realize that you don't have to carve a God in order to have some idol before the Lord. We could take anything and make it our God. We could take TV or sports 
or money or a career or immorality or virtually anything and make it our God, even ministry, even theology. Christians can become obsessed with studying theology and fight one another over doctrinal debates to where that's what's important to them, not God, not ministering the gospel, not loving their neighbor, but proving that Calvinists are wrong, which is one of my favorite things to do. So keep yourselves from idols, that is, keep God before you, and don't let anything get between me and God, between you and God. May God bless you guys. Hey, it's Nicole McBurney reminding you again that it is Telethon Month and we need your help to reach our $25,000 goal. So head over to kgov.com and click on that Telethon banner to help us out. You can purchase a product, make a donation, or if you subscribe to one of our monthly subscriptions, we will multiply the price by 10 and apply that to our Telethon goal. Thank you again to everyone who has donated. We really appreciate all of your support. And hey, may God bless you guys.